0: It's, most of you I know, um, and it's a delight for me to be here. Um, I'd like to start um, with a story. It's a story that's told of a missionary who was sent after his first year in seminary, a priest who was sent to um, work in Kenya. and it's said that this um, priest was working in a village in Kenya and he started to notice that many of the villagers were getting diseases that were contracted through the skin and he started to watch and notice what was happening and he realized that they were getting these diseases contracted through the skin because they were always sitting on the dirt, sitting directly on the ground and so he had this great idea, he had a brainwave and he thought okay, we're going to build stools. So he got the villagers together and talked about stools and how important it was to not be sitting right on the ground and he collected the materials, got the wood together, and um, together they built stools. So then everybody in the village was now sitting on stools. And there was a tremendous decrease in the number of illnesses that were contracted through the skin. But suddenly everybody started to get lung infections and the reason they were getting lung infections is that in an African hut they have a fire inside the the hut, the cooking fire and the smoke comes up to a certain level and when they were on the ground they were below that level and now that they were on the stools they were breathing in all the smoke so okay so what can we do so he has another brainwave, and he thinks, well, we'll just put vents in the roof to let the, um, let the smoke vent out. So he gathered the village together and started talking about the importance of vents and how this would prevent the problem of the lung infections. So not because they really wanted to make vents and not because they had even wanted to make stools, but probably just to get this guy off their back they agreed to put vents in all of the roofs so they went about making vents in all of the roofs and it did it let the smoke out and the incidences of lung infections dramatically decreased and then everybody started to get malaria (laughs) because mosquitoes don't like smoke so when the smoke went out the mosquitoes came in so the topic I want to speak about tonight is interconnection (laughs) and I'm going to talk about interconnection in three ways the first way of understanding interconnection is in terms of cause and effect and in this way interconnection is seen as a linear process certain causes and conditions create certain effects and results this approach can be found in the sutras and it's very often the way that karma is understood because it can be, it's often described in the sutras um, that because, because of this, that comes to be. Because of the cessation of this, that ceases. Dependent on this, that arises. With the cessation of this, that ceases. So there's very much a, a, a kind of linear cause and effect. And in this way, karma, it can be understood that certain um, conditions create certain results. Certain actions will ripen towards certain kinds of fruits. This is important in understanding how it is that our actions bring results, how our past conditions our future. And when we start to see how our past conditions our future, we can begin to value, uh, really start to value the power of morality in our conduct. It isn't just something that we do to be good, but we act in certain ways because we want certain results or don't want other results. Um, An illustration of this quality of causation is that if you were to push say a plate off the edge of a, of, a, of a dish I mean off the edge of a table take a, a plate or a dish and push it off the edge of the table there's an interdependence between the hand that pushes and the plate and the falling and the breaking there's an interdependence some causal links there you don't say that the plate broke independent of its being pushed even though the actual pushing ended prior to the moment that the plate broke. There still are causal links, even though there isn't direct contact in those moments. So there's still a sequence of cause and effect occurring. So there's cause, effect, and a law that (coughs) governs that process of cause and effect. And understanding how these events influence each other is a very important foundation for the strengthening of our own moral conduct. This understanding of the linear, of a linear model of cause and effect can be very inspiring to really take care in our actions because we don't want to create painful conditions for our own future. So the linear approach cause and effect is one way of understanding interdependence. A second approach is understanding interconnectedness in terms of a mutual dependency of phenomenon. Um, I studied with a teacher um, named Stephen Batchelor who calls this things being contingently configured. It's kind of a nice series of words, contingently configured. And it basically means that without parts there isn't a whole without a whole there isn't parts the traditional illustration that's used um, in India and in the Buddhist teachings as well is of a chariot contemporarily we usually speak of a car or a truck but you don't to, to compose a chariot or a car we need the tires we need the hood we need the seats we need the steering wheel we need the brake we don't take the brake and the tires apart and say this is a car and yet without components, we also don't make up a car and we can start to then debate how many components of a car do we need to call it a car, but basically you get the idea that, that, that parts make up a whole and a whole is composed of parts. This is an illustration that also works with consciousness. So consciousness can be dependent upon the coming together of senses and an organ that recognizes the senses and the knowing of it. Sight is dependent upon the objects, an object to see as well as a capacity to see and an ability to cognize what is seen. There's a, a very traditional story in India of a king That hears a lute, and he demands that his minister bring him that most beautiful sound. So the minister goes to the musician and returns to the, um, takes the lute and returns to the king with this lute. But the king is very angry. He's not pleased at all to see the lute, and he demands the sound, not the box not the instrument. And the minister then explains to the king that the sound does not exist separately but is dependent upon the string, the bow, the box, the player. And this is an illustration that is often used that to understand how self, how identity, how a sense of being someone is contingently configured. Just as the king cannot find an independently existing sound, so it is with the self. There isn't a self that exists independent of conditions. The cycle of the 12 links of dependent origination describes how suffering arises dependent upon the coming together of many factors. It may be called dependent co-arising. And those 12 links include ignorance, volitional formations, consciousness, the sixfold sense bases, the eyes, ears, hearing, the, the, the senses, um, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, attachment, becoming, birth, and finally suffering. These all come together to produce the conditions for suffering. We cannot find a separately existing self or an essence that is suffering apart from a cluster of contingently configured factors. These links, these twelve links of these dependently arising factors are often used to understand this process. But another model, which is a little bit shorter, has only five parts to it which is the five aggregates and it's also a model that's used to understand how the self is contingently configured. How does self arise independence upon phenomenon? Is there ever actually a sense of self? Do you ever feel a sense of being someone without the presence of perception or sensory experience? mental phenomenon? Do you ever feel a sense of self without those conditions? Those five aggregates include form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, which come together to create a sense of being someone who perceives in the world, someone who recognizes experience. So these come together under certain conditions. They're lawful conditions. It's not necessarily a personal process that is unique to me, unique to you, unique, unique, unique. It's actually a lawful process that occurs in this mind-body system. So we don't need to take our experience so personally. It may be seen as simply the arising of a combination of interdependent factors we may not need to invest it so strongly with the sense of I-ness or me-ness or mine-ness. This way we're seeing self as simply the arising of conditioned phenomenon through a coherent and lawful process. It's not so random and it's not so personal. We may miss the mysterious interconnection if we establish hierarchies where one part is more important than another part. We may miss that nothing exists without the connections of everything else. Systems theory became quite popular a number of years ago and it it has a deep-rooted understanding of these interconnections particularly in environmental and ecological systems where one event that happens in one part of the world may affect um, tides or weather or bees or pollen or all sorts of things that affect things in other parts of the world we just don't exist so separately in our own little world but actually um, events are so intimately interconnected, made up of so many different interdependent parts. I was watching um, one of the the Star Trek original series, the old one from the late sixties, and there's an early episode where there's a time portal. See science fiction is a great place to get to play with those interconnections because they can do time travel and all sorts of imaginary and fantasy things. Um, but there's this time portal and one of the members of the crew slips through accidentally so others, and then all of a sudden their world disappears, right? The Enterprise vanishes because they're on this planet with this time portal. So to get their world back, they have to go back into this, back into time, find what their did that screwed everything up basically and return it to normal so that their world reappears and it turns out as the plot unfolds that they're returned to the time that is uh, prior to World War II early 20th century um, in the U.S. and they meet a woman who is in a um, soup kitchen working in a soup kitchen and it turns out that she's a pacifist and um, is there's, she's part of a budding anti-war movement? Um, it turns out that the crew member at, um, prevents her death, and what they have to do is allow her to die for their world to return. Because as the plot unfolds, it turns out that this pacifist, when she was when she lit it, when she was able to live, ended up developing an incredibly strong anti-war movement that delayed the entrance of the United States into World War II, that allowed the Nazis to win, that delayed—that didn't happen in the, the whole space war race that sent the rocket to the moon and the space flights and all of these things. And basically, this fictional enterprise never occurred, and the Star Trek episodes never occurred on television. <laughs> <laughs> So it's science fiction, but it also plays with this idea of just how small events, we just don't know how they'll unfold and really all of the intimate connections that they may have. Are there any Trekkies in here? <laughs> A few, so I wasn't totally out of the, out to space or anything. <laughs> um, Okay, the third approach to interconnection that I want to mention is the principle of interdependence that is understood in terms of the creation and formation of identity or meaning. The identity of a particular event or object is dependent upon its context and its environment. Meaning or significance is produced through context. I think art is a really good example of this. Art objects may be art or they may be junk. Duchamp's work was one of the primary examples of how um, that, that illustrated this kind of interdependence with the context of a museum, the context that the art world creates. The toilet bowl that he showed in the museum was art in the context of the museum, but that same toilet bowl in a bathroom is just something to shit in (laughs) the context creates the meaning and so it depends upon that environment that context for its identity and in this way identity is understood as being co-emergent it's not absolute it's not in the thing itself but it's relative dependent upon the coming together of a context of factors. Certain things and events will possess identity in relationship to other things. Identity is not an essence that we find within the thing. It's not something that we can dissect out or discover or that will have any meaning outside of context. So understanding interconnection through this understanding of identity and context is one avenue towards the insight into voidness, towards the insight into openness, towards understanding the emptiness of self. Seeing that meaning, identity, is situational, that we're not able to find an inherent existence, we begin to realize, the emptiness of things and cease to impute them with a separate existence that exists outside of those dependent factors. We cease to then infer that there's a reified independently existing self inside this process rather than dependent upon the coming together of so many forces and factors. So interdependence may be seen as understood through cause and effect. It may be understood through the contingently configured codependent arising cluster of parts and wholes and experiences together. Or it may be understood in the creation of meaning and identity that arises through the coming together of a context. But the question of interconnection is not just one for philosophers to speculate about or to create models in order to understand it. Actually the reflection of interconnection leads us to consider simple questions like how is it that how we live our lives affects other lives? How does our practice help others? When we sit with our eyes closed, are we separate from others? Bringing some awareness to our connectedness and through that connectedness, the heart tends to open with a quality of compassion that actually connects. Some people are using the term openness to describe emptiness. And I think it's actually, although it sounds like a very different word, it actually describes very much the same insight. I think it's a fair, it may not be a classic translation, but I think it's a fair pointing to that quality of empty openness. Thich Han is famous for holding up a piece of paper. And saying, "What do you see in this paper?" So, what do you see? Tree. You see a tree. Okay. What else do you see? Color. You see color. What else? Shape. Shape. What else? Follow the tree a little further. Loggers. You see loggers. Good. And. Food to feed the loggers. Food to feed the loggers. And. Protesters. Protesters of the loggers. Yes. I remember him saying, I was at a teaching with him many years ago, and he held it and, and then he said, do you see the cloud? Do you see the cloud? Really allow those connections to include everything, not just the, the physical production, but also to embrace the nature, the cloud, the, the vapor, the water that goes to the ocean, That's Passes through a fish, that then becomes the rain, that this and that. I mean, the, 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 the possibilities of seeing, seeing everything in a piece of paper. It's just quite mysterious and stunning and really opens the mind with that insight into emptiness. The more we understand our own minds, the more we can actually simply understand others. And I think that's one of the values of deepening our own practice and deepening wisdom and insight because it starts to let us understand the commonality of experience and we may gain a little more compassion for the suffering of others when we get in touch with our own vulnerability, with our own pain and our own suffering. Because we value our own freedom, we may also increase the sense of valuing the freedom of others. When we get in touch with our own capacity to make a change in our lives, it also gives us a sense that other people have this capacity to change, and we may not keep them locked into a perception that we held of them from five years ago or ten years ago or twenty-six years ago. When we start to recognize how incredibly annoying our own minds are when we sit down to meditate, it may give us a little bit more space around the coworker who talks too much or the friend who's telling you that story for the eighth time. When you think, well, you know, I sat a day long and I think I told myself the same story about 18 times. So sometimes when we look into our own minds and gain a little bit of insight, it just sort of spills out a little bit and we can have a little bit more space around the foibles of others. From our own experiential insights that we gain through our practice, through the growth of wisdom and compassion, we can start to realize that we're not powerless over our tendencies. We don't have to be locked into patterns even though we may be influenced by patterns. And we can start to trust the potential within ourselves and within all beings for true liberation and for living with compassion. Many of our insights are not personal. They're actually very universal and they're not so unusual. I was, just, um, I, I was just on retreat last week and um, actually um, returned only today. Um, had the opportunity to, to do some study up um, in Abayagiri as well. So had a nice combination of meditation retreat at Spirit Rock and then Sutra Study at Abayagiri and returned this afternoon. Um, and as always on retreat, one of the things that I'm quite touched by is the connection that happens in silence. I left to go to my sutra study before silence broke. So I didn't say a word to anybody the whole time. In fact, my tire blew out on 280 as I was driving to it, so I arrived really late, so I didn't even say hello to anybody. (laughs) And um, there was still this, this sense of not being isolated in the slightest, but really sitting together, practicing together in a community of care, a community of integrity, and very simple gestures of, you know, people holding the door open or walking quietly or just making space for each other is a kind of deep courtesy that I think honors our connection and takes us out of a sense of me and mine, I've got to go, I've got to rush, I've got to do, but just sort of allows a little bit of space for each other. So even without action or without interaction, without speaking, we can sense the intimacy with each other and the sensitivity growing. A deepening in practice of metta, of mindfulness, of relaxation, the things that improve a sense of ease, maybe even self-improvement, understanding ourselves better, softening our hearts, creating a sense of being more gentle, more peaceful, maybe a little bit less selfish, maybe a little bit less reactive in life. It not only eases our own suffering, but it's inevitable that it will will ease the mood around you, the field of energy around you. And that, I really believe, affects other people. We really know it when we come into the room and somebody is in a rage. And we also really know and recognize a calmness of presence, a centeredness of being. When we're in a better mood, when we're less fearful, less anxious, less worried, that affects other people and it may allow them to feel a little bit more trust, a little bit more open. Much of our interactions, whether they're conversations or through working together in projects, many of those things that we do together are not so much motivated by the task but may be motivated by the wish to connect, to overcome any kind of feeling that we're living isolated in a bubble, separate from each other. When I lived with my guru in India, Punjachi, many, many people would offer to do things for him or to do things around the house to massage his feet or to fix a light bulb or to cook this or to do that or to plant something in the garden. It was amazing to me how many projects people could come up with Um, because actually very little was needed. And at first um, we lived in the house really in a mode more of renunciation and his response to most offers was, we don't need it we don't need it which was very true we lived a very very simple life that needed very little and most projects only created more needs and complications so his the first probably maybe two years maybe more than that that i was with him it was always uh, we don't need it we don't need it we don't need it the last year or so that i lived with him things started to shift and i think he was was really allowing satsang to take the form the, of these connections through projects, the connections through service, the connections through doing something for him or for the house or planting something in the garden, and to, in a way, honor that form of teaching, that form of connection and that form of service. We are always connected. We are always affecting and interacting the community around us whether that's for better or for worse. Whether we're active or we're silent, whether we're engaged or withdrawn, uh, the quality of our presence is having an impact. In 1990, I went to India for for the first time and was sitting a meditation retreat in Bodhgaya where the Buddha was enlightened. Christopher Titmuss had um, started these retreats back in the early 70s and continues to teach them each year. And he was... um, What usually happens is there's about 100 um, people doing a meditation retreat, and then at another part we meet in the Thai temple. At another part of the temple, the village children come each morning um, and do some chanting, and then um, Christopher would give a... um, a little talk, maybe a story from the Jataka tales or a little story about the Buddha or you know a short illustration or something and speak with the children for a few minutes and then some of us would pass out something like bananas or eggs or a a couple of rupees. Um, The village children, the villagers in this area are particularly very very poor so even um, the possibility of getting Um, A banana would bring, gosh, dozens and dozens and dozens, 50, 60 children to be able to get a banana because there was really a problem of of starvation, of malnutrition, Um, very, very serious. Um, In Bihar, it's um, probably the poorest, the most illiterate. the most corrupt, one of the most violent and impoverished areas of India. So the situation of these children was quite desperate. Um, and so we would we would do this, and then we'd go back, you know, it would be like a half an hour or so with the children, and then we would go back and continue with our sitting and walking, sitting and walking and sitting and walking until the next morning, and then a few of us would go back to the temple and be with the children. And there was one friend on this retreat named Rick. And um, he kept thinking, there has got to be something more we can do than give these kids two bananas and an egg. There's just got to be something more we can do. And I remember at the end of the retreat, our lives went in different directions. I went to, um, sit, I went to meet Punjaji, who who I ended up staying with in Lucknow and um, Rick stayed in Bodh Gaya and started to talk with different people and talked with Thomas who knew many of the people in um, in Bodh Gaia. they got together and just started to ask the question is there something more we can do talking <clears throat> to the local people talking with um, the people who lived there and they ended up very simply renting one room and hiring one teacher and they started a school that within a few years has developed and blossomed into buying land, a three-story structure, 10 faculty, full-time, 380 students, a wait list that I don't even know how long is on of students who want to get into it. They only allow the poorest of the poor where both parents are illiterate, where these children would have no possible other chance for any education. And there's a huge, huge wait list. So they take 380 students. And um, it's all supported by the donations of people like us who go to the retreats, who sit at the retreats, and it costs $40 per student per year. That's all. Really amazing. It all started because this one young man thought, is there something more we can do than pass out two bananas? And to be willing to make a connection and to take one small step and to allow that connection to develop to foster to see where it goes, there's a story closer to home just across the bay of of um, Carolyn North, who um, sat many retreats um, in um, California, and she was in Berkeley back, I guess it was late 70s early 80s I'm not sure exactly somewhere around there and she was living in Berkeley and saw in her neighborhood a, um, a homeless person taking food from the dumpster and eating the food and it felt really close to home this was her neighborhood and she had that thought is there something more that I can do and instead of just pushing that thought away she acted on it. She talked with some friends. She um, ended up getting a group of people together. And what they did started to do is they started a project called Daily Bread. And people before or after work would pick up food donations from bakeries and stores that were going to throw the food away. And they would bring that food to um, shelters and soup kitchens. So they provided the links to help get food to the people who needed it. Again, it was not a complex idea, but it was the initial step of making that connection. So sensing our connections and a willingness to connect can overcome that odd feeling that many people have of feeling separate and alienated, alone or lonely. Meditation practice attunes us to this connectedness, to this love. A Japanese poet Isa from the 18th century said, In the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. So as our sense of interconnection strengthens, and the sense of alienation, dividedness, separateness diminishes, we're not just thinking of me, what I want, what's good for my group but it's as though it opens the sense of what our family is, of what our community is. Interconnection is not just something that's a realization that happens in our practice. It's also a motivation to practice. This is the motivation of bodhicitta. The altruistic attitude, the altruistic intention to be of benefit to all. To realize Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. Not just to improve myself, but to realize Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. So that when we sit down to practice meditation... We are not just trying to ease or unwind a particular tension that occurred through a day of work, but we're actually taking a moment to commit ourselves to the practice of awakening for the benefit of all. Can we aspire to liberate our own minds so that we are of greater benefit to all beings? I'll stop there why don't we sit for two or three minutes together